0: On this episode of Neighboring, we sit down with Rachel Blakeman, the research director for the Community Research Institute of Purdue Fort Wayne, uh, to talk about a two year, multi-phase research project, uh, which attempts to answer the question, what makes a healthy neighborhood healthy? This research project has been made possible by the Follinger Foundation's INSPIRE grant. Uh, We applied and were approved and are grateful for the Follinger Foundation's investment into NeighborLink as we ask bigger questions and try to grow and develop our organization to be prepared for the future and help more neighborhoods. So tune into the episode, I hope you enjoy it, Uh, get a high level view of some of the research and five four-way neighborhoods that uh, are making a difference and are really interesting to learn more about. back to this uh, next episode of Neighboring, the podcast where we sit around and ask uh, really interesting and smarter people than us what it means to be a good neighbor and or what makes a healthy neighborhood healthy. And today we are focused in on that second question, what makes a healthy neighborhood healthy? Uh, We are wrapping up phase one of a comprehensive research project that if you've been listening to the podcast, you've uh, likely heard or saw a few episodes where we interviewed different neighborhoods, kind of have been introducing this concept. Well, we're finishing up phase one, and today we wanted to take the time to sit down with Rachel Blakeman, um, the director of the Community Research Institute of Purdue-Fort Wayne, who has been partnering with us in going along this journey. So we are going to sit down and we're going to talk about the research project, we're gonna hit some highlights, we're gonna talk about each of the different neighborhoods and some of the things that not only stood out to us at NeighborLink, but really from Rachel's perspective as a researcher and somebody that's really involved in a lot of different research projects here locally, how this kind of fits into the collective aspects of community development. We're kind of in a, a new phase of what we're kind of calling, for lack of a better term now, or a relatable term in top, terms of like redevelopment. Like. Our community has been growing and developing and growing on the edges for a number of years in in terms of housing or uh, economic development, and we're kind of in the middle of economic development in the central core, but now the conversation is kind of edging out towards the neighborhood, more so than it has in 15 years or longer, at least, that I've been around in this stuff. So welcome, Rachel. Thank you. Uh, introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about CRI and the work that you're doing.
1: Sure. Well, I'm Rachel Blakeman. I'm the director of the Community Research Institute at Purdue University Fort Wayne, and we do contract-based research and analysis. So our clients hire us to help them uh, make informed decisions, answer questions. We'd like to do that with quantitative and, when appropriate, qualitative data, so that that way we give you information to help you draw your own conclusions. We're pretty neutral in the process. We don't really have an. We don't bring an agenda with us. We just say here. What are the questions you're looking to answer? Then we go to the data sources that we have and are able then to help you answer the questions you're asking.
0: So we've contracted you to do this project. Uh, the context behind this project for us was NeighborLink is a grassroots volunteer organization that spends a lot of time interacting with neighbors. We're trying to follow up and kind of pick up the pick up the pieces that are falling through the cracks of social services. That has primarily over the last 15 years really been a re- around a lot of housing and neighborhood related stuff. Things, uh, fixed income homeowners, people living on fixed incomes of 800 to $1,200, typical social security disability for those kind of working class individuals that have hit that phase of life. And it just doesn't give them much uh, additional income to save for things like roofing, furnaces, which over the last 15 years we've collected probably 30,000 requests for assistance. And we track and we don't turn anyone Away, way so that data has really been interesting for us and has been asking bigger questions ultimately like what does neighborhood stabilization look like how do you do this in a grassroots volunteer way uh, when you're partnering with city government or their outside funders what are they looking for and are they really interested in the day-to-day house-to-house kind of perspective or just staying really high level with the quantitative of a regional information or even city of Fort Wayne or the county so we've been asking a lot of these questions but through that, spending a lot of time with homeowners and relationship. And when you're mowing somebody's grass or you're raking the leaves or you're painting their house, you get to know people and you ask questions and then our curiosity really leads us to uh, tell us about your neighborhood or how long have you lived here or tell us about your background. And we, over the last few years, have been looking at that and then trying to be a part of the bigger conversation. And you know, the bigger conversation gives us an idea or a perception of what, neighborhood health is oh look at this neighborhood because they've got this event and is growing and people are flipping homes and so that's like a really great neighborhood everyone wants to live there and on the flip side look at this low-income neighborhood this whole side of town is dilapidated or uh, it needs somebody to come in and fix it and here's the prescription and it just didn't match up as well as what we were experienced when we're engaging. So ultimately it led to this conversation of what makes a healthy neighborhood healthy. So we had uh, contracted um, CRI and and entered into this to look at five different neighborhoods and I would love to take some time to talk about each of the five neighborhoods, uh, have you fill us in on some quantitative data and maybe some of the qualitative things that kind of stood out. Sure. Uh, We are also here with Bernadette Becker, who's on our team. Uh, She's an AmeriCorps VISTA member who has a passion for research and has been helping us on this project. So you'll hear her kind of hop in on the call and and add some of the comments that she's been researching and participating. So let's start with the five neighborhoods. Sure. We chose these five neighborhoods kind of specifically based on neighborhoods that get touted as being really healthy and have signs and shown economic development and growth. Uh, West Central as being one of those. Uh, one of the unique things that we saw when we chose that particular neighborhood was uh, that it's always been kind of the, the quintessential central neighborhood, right? The urban neighborhood that's adjacent to downtown and has a good diversity of, of a lot of things. Well in recent years it's kind of jumped a major corridor and started developing to its south and Um, Kind of the same thing we've experienced uh, to the north, they're seeing on the south. And then we chose North Highlands, which is a northern uh, urban neighborhood, not very far out of the central core, that uh, is a really stable neighborhood. And it's adjacent to a lot of things, but it's one of those neighborhoods, unless you're familiar of it, you probably don't drive through it, and or know where it's at.
1: Right, you might have seen it when you drive on West State, but it's but in terms of actually driving through the neighborhood, there's no th- uh, commercial corridor that's going to take you through the the residential part of that neighborhood. There's
0: no marker for it. Just a good former suburban neighborhood that, that grew in the '40s, '50s. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we looked at uh, a couple of other central neighborhoods one being williams woodland which is kind of this really small pocket neighborhood the smallest neighborhood that we research but it's had a lot of development uh, neighbors moved in probably 40 years ago and made it a claim. so there was this history of people that like chose to buy old homes and renovate them and stabilize it um, but it's really small uh, just to the north is another sh- neighborhood uh, that is called hoagland masterson And it's, in our minds, kind of one of the last remaining traditional neighborhoods in the downtown area that's had little to no development. And it's, uh, again, it's one of those neighborhoods because unless you live in that area and use the corridors, the north-south corridors, you really don't even go through it. And if you are taking those corridors, you're not really going to see much of the neighborhood either because they have a business district on either side of it. Um, unless you go east and west down Creighton which is the main thoroughfare that splits those two neighborhoods you don't really have much context for where you're at um, so we looked at both of those neighborhoods here's a healthy healthier neighborhood or gets perceived Williams Woodland and it has the economics in some ways to back it up and then Hoagland and so if a neighborhood really wanted to get excited and see how it could jump a, a boundary those are the two neighbors and then we looked at Uh, Pederrudesil on the southeast side which gets a lot of attention for being collectively as a quadrant just the worst in the city Uh, and it gets wrapped up in that but Pederrudesil looks a lot like North Highlands at least physically you drive through it the houses look the same or similar like in context and it's a pretty homogenous neighborhood but it's also one of the largest neighborhoods we studied and uh, we kind of looked at it if there's another north south corridor that kind of Bridge is an area that is really growing and starting to develop in what we call the 46807, which is a collection of neighborhoods. And it's kind of like if if development is gonna kind of grow on the fringes towards southeast, maybe it goes down that street. So that's some context for those particular neighborhoods. You wanna dive in on?
1: Sure, sure. Well, let's take a look first at West Central, which I think actually people don't understand how large West Central is. So when people hear West Central, they're thinking Wayne and Berry Street. So they're thinking of the West Central home tour. West Central is actually a very large neighborhood. So you're going to be running on the sort of north and west side with the river. Then you're actually going all the way into the central business district in Calhoun. Then the south of it is past the railroad tracks, near electric work. So depending on how you look at it, it's many neighborhoods within one. So what I think was interesting that there was a decision made during this project to actually create a sub-neighborhood, what we called West Central CDAP, uh, which was actually from a development plan that the city of Fort Wayne had developed so that that way we looked more closely at the the traditional residential portion leaving off the, the central business district, the downtown portion of the neighborhood. And so I think that that was a really interesting thing. So I think for people to understand that West Central is much larger than what is perceived to be. And so the West Central Historic District actually does not cover the entire neighborhood. So the portions that you're thinking of as traditional West Central, that's the Historic District. But the Historic District doesn't cover everything. And so there's some dynamics with that that we can talk about a little bit later if we so desire. Williams Woodland, I think, is just kind of a baby West Central in terms of its size. Um, Part of it is I think also we need to be thinking about what is the housing stock that is within each of these neighborhoods. And so Williams Woodland has large stately homes here that lend themselves to the kind of renovation that you're seeing so that you're going to be willing to sink thousands and thousands of dollars into these houses because you can anticipate that you're going to be able to get that back in return because they're large enough they've got a lot of interest and um, architectural value they're also on the national register of historic places and i also believe they're a local historic district as well so there's been a clear decision made by the neighbors in that that they want to preserve the historic character now one of the things that that comes with historic character is a lot of maintenance and so that was one of the things that we heard in some of the feedback was owning a historic house is not for the faint of heart and those who do not have deep pockets um, because it has a certain level of demand that you're going to need to do. Then if we take a look and we shift over to Hoagland Masterson, that's really a neighborhood I hadn't spent much time thinking about considering or understanding prior to this project. And I think that it's, and I know you've talked to the Hoagland Masterson leadership from their neighborhood association, it's a really obvious next neighborhood that's going to to have the possibility of taking off. Uh, It's got similar housing stock to Williams-Woodland and West Central. I mean, if you look at it on a map, I can go from West Central into Hoagland-Masterson into Williams-Woodland. All three of those align. So that's, so, but that area just hasn't enjoyed much private investment outside of some, some occasional homeowner renovation type projects but it hasn't there's been no real market forces on that neighborhood yet yeah. so we'll see what happens
0: and all three of those neighborhoods when we're talking about housing in this conversation some of them ex- have expressed or experienced a blight elimination differently than the other two neighborhoods mm-hmm. uh, and so Williams Woodland has for the most part because of a small stature, stature and investment over a long time of a key individuals, there wasn't much blight elimination that's happened in that neighborhood, kind of on the fringes a little bit. But then we saw a lot in Hoagland-Masterson where there's a lot of vacant land, a lot of opportunity, uh, a lot of clearing out of homes during, uh, in the last 10 years or so, but West Central was unique. And so that was one strategy for Hoagland-Masterson where uh, a neighborhood, this is one of the things we've talked about a lot is one strategy for blight elimination is let's get rid of the problem homes, let's just eliminate them and Uh, it's better to have an empty lot than to have a problem house. Yeah,
1: Yeah, exactly, and I think that that's that's the idea of working within the neighborhood structure to understand what are the demands of that. And so for some neighborhoods, they're going to perceive a vacant property as actually a detriment Mm -hmm. of attracting unsavory unfavorable behaviors and others and so they'll want it down and others are like we can never regain that structure if we tear it down and so if you believe that there's a a strong market proposition in your neighborhood you're going to retain that going back to the other neighborhoods, i don't want to leave those off no no that's all right so then what we did was then also looking at north highlands and pettit rudisil pettit russell was the largest of the neighborhoods substantially in terms of population also by size Um, and so it's it's actually not that much larger than West Central, but still it's, but in terms of the population, we've got about f- more than 5,000 people living there. That's pretty substantial in, in terms of that. But the dynamic was that it had probably the least active of the neighborhood associations. A largest has a majority of renters in the neighborhood. We can talk more about the perceptions of renters and what that what that has. But I think that that was an interesting thing. And the North Highlands, with the exception of just a few measures, um, namely race and edu- and uh, education looks almost exactly like fort wayne it's really i mean if you were to we made that in this project we used the comparison data of the city of fort wayne against these five neighborhoods and so when we started comparing against it it continued to align almost precisely with the city of fort wayne and that was a really interesting way of looking at it like i said with the exception of educational attainment and race and ethnicity
0: so all of this is in part of a summary document that we've created and we'll link in this particular show notes and it's up on our website and we have some basic data in this report. So if you're listening you want to dive into it a little bit further, we'll have a summary report you can kinda of dive into. You allude to City of Four Wayne. Give some boundaries to like the city of Four Wayne sure. in general.
1: Sure, yeah. So uh, so the city. So we looked at the city of Fort Wayne proper, so the folks who will be voting in the city election, yeah. that's who we looked at. Um, so up north, you're gonna be north of DuPont Road. On the west, you're gonna be into um, a Township. It's kind of a jagged line on yeah. that. South, you're gonna be down to about um, the airport and then across from there. And then on the east side, you're going to be up against New Haven. So that sort of gives a general boundary on that's,
0: that. That's really helpful. I think uh, many of the conversations I'm in when we talk about city and population, city and county for us get really kind of, what is the total population of Fort Wayne? And we often think of the county. And so it's good for, for the sake of this conversation. So what are some of the things that stood out for you for each neighborhood?
1: Sure. So let's go ahead, and we can start with pettit Uh So again, that is the largest of the neighborhoods. It also is majority-minority, and so I think that that has a, a consideration. Now, what does that consideration look like? Well, that's gonna be for, for another conversation on that, but I think that that's really important to understand. Pettit-Rudisil has a number of children, uh, so that that was an interesting thing. Actually, all five neighborhoods were overrepresented with the possible exception of West Central in terms of children and underrepresented with people over the age of 65. Mm-hmm. So that tells us something about where people choose to live. And so you're going to have, Pettit Rouge soldiers had a large number of children. And I think that's an interesting dynamic when you're thinking about what kind of community development efforts do you want to do, programming, things like that. You're going to need to honor and respect that you've got a number of children that also then usually limits parents' ability to engage with neighborhood associations because their their time and energy is spent with their children and the needs that they have.
0: Yeah, the median age for Petaruso is 28 years old or so, and for the city is about 37, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, then, so that was an interesting dynamic on that. We touched on North Highlands, but I think, again, it's just really interesting when you go through and you look at it, the city of Fort Wayne compared to all the other measures that North Highlands looks suspiciously like the city of Fort Wayne. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that that was an interesting element on that. So you're going to want to take a look uh, on that as well. Uh, Williams Woodland is interesting because you've got both ends of the spectrum in terms of education and employment. Um, So you've got some folks who are a number of college educated folks, higher income professionals, Uh, white collar workers, then you've got a large number of those without high school diplomas um, in terms of working class, those kinds of jobs. So you've got both ends of the spectrum there.
0: And I know education is a huge uh, key kind of component for you in terms of overall city health or yeah. area of health. Yeah. Describe why that is important.
1: Yeah, so if you hear me give a presentation is very about a community, you're very likely to hear me talk about educational attainment. And it actually doesn't have anything to do with the fact that I work for an for a institution of higher education. It actually has to do with the fact that educational attainment, so where you stop your schooling, is a significant driver of your household income. And so one of the conversations we've been having here in Fort Wayne and in Northeast Indiana is how to grow income, how to grow wages think, uh, on those measures. And so understanding that we are actually as a city, as a state, as a region, we are behind where we're at nationally. So the, and so we have fewer college graduates here than we do. We actually usually do pretty well on the number of high- school graduates so we typically do that interestingly in these neighborhoods there were some that had a large number without high school diplomas yeah. but that the relationship between your education level and your income and then as we look at neighborhoods you know this from your work with working with neighbors is that your income drives your ability to maintain your home yeah. often and so having income constrained folks are going to uh, create some dynamics of how do you revitalize and energize neighborhoods
0: it's a really good ex- example of some of the quantitative sides of looking at neighborhood health for us. You know, Part of our desire at NeighborLink from this was looking at both, like what are the key indicators of neighborhood health? Like, certainly there are some quantitative uh, elements that we should be aware of as a neighborhood and looking at the qualitative. And so that educational attainment one, especially, and this determines a lot of factors for your neighborhood's ability to exhibit health grow Attract, you know, commerce or whatever it is that's made, mm-hmm. that plays a big part in it.
1: Yeah, West Central. If we go back and take a look at some of the data for West Central, what's interesting is that you actually have not a lot of families with children, uh, but you do have a lot of people living alone. Um, which isn't, if you know, I mean obviously downtown is not uh, what we would consider to be an area that would attract a lot of families with children, so that's not surprising. Uh, But their educational attainment actually closely matches the city of Fort Wayne, uh, but their household income does not. So we've got some interesting dynamics happening here. A lot of people who are living alone, maybe some roommate situations, what we call non-family households, which creates an interesting dynamic um, that I think is not surprising to folks who are familiar with, with with West Central, but affirms that as well. So those were some of the things that we saw.
0: Yeah, one of the things on the West Central that was interesting for me is coming into this research, knowing that West Central included most of the central business district, and knowing that most of the neighbors or the neighborhood associations we're working with don't necessarily consider that, You know, maybe on paper and technically they understand that, but in terms of quality of life related in, in contributing to the neighborhood health, They're very separate. And so that kind of conversation uh, and nor do we see a lot of like if you're living in an apartment complex, choosing more of an urban apartment complex life in downtown, you're not necessarily thinking much of the neighborhood aspect other than its proximity to you. But one of the the key things in terms of the quantitative data is we anticipated with the neighborhood association, or at least the neighborhood association, and thought that maybe the numbers were, would be drastically different. That that the residential aspects or the income aspects that wrapped up the whole thing when split between those two would impact the data, and it didn't. Yeah, that much
1: West Central better. and West Central CDP look more alike than they look different, yeah. um, and I can't give any explanation other than that's what the data show, uh, and so it just tells me that it's it's west central is more alike than it is different when you compare the central business district now also when we looked at the numbers we didn't say west central cdap and then all of the rest of west central sure. most people live within west central cdap and the map is online you can take a look and see yeah. where the boundaries are so it does but they look much more alike than they look different yeah
0: many neighbors were uh, that was uh, kind of one of those libel moments for many of the neighbors as we were reflecting and talking to them with <laughs> the data
1: yeah Yeah, so that's, and then Hopeland Masterson is again like a neighborhood that is really sort of a, is one that doesn't get much attention. Uh, and I think then has a large Hispanic population, which creates a unique dynamic. We don't have information about languages spoken at home, so I don't want to make an assumption that those who are of Hispanic heritage are speaking a language other than English at home, but the anecdotes from the Neighborhood Association indicate that there may be a large Spanish-speaking population. How does that affect a neighborhood association trying to work to create collaborative uh, efforts in their neighborhood?
0: Yeah, what was clear from the interaction was there's a, a desire for, of the neighborhood leadership to work together, uh, but there, it was unclear how to overcome some of the either cultural or language barriers that they believed exist.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that you have that on, on those.
0: All right. Bernadette, anything that stood out to you on this?
2: I thought it was fascinating that based on like anecdote, you would think that Pettit-Rudisil and West Central are incredibly different, but when it came down to individual income and median income, they were remarkably similar, mm-hmm. which is very striking, especially for me and in coming into, I grew up outside of city limits. So when I thought of downtown Fort Wayne, I thought of West Central and how pretty it was and the two streets that you drive down the main thoroughfares, and but then Knowing that people can be as income constrained in West Central as they are in Pettit Rutisol and how different and how incredibly differently they're perceived in the stigma based on certain neighborhoods, that was just shocking to me.
1: Yeah, so some of the, I think what the thing, one of the key elements to take away from all of this work is that these central city neighborhoods, we've looked at these five, but we also did some work with the Downtown Improvement District a couple years ago, is to understand the number of low-income households, the number of people who are holding their lives together on less than $25,000 a year, less than $15,000 a year, is remarkable and cannot be overlooked. And I think that that's something that's really important to understand from whether you're a social service agency serving them from in terms of direct service, if you're looking to do a community development project, I mean, what are the dynamics that are happening here and that cannot be overlooked.
2: Yeah. Yeah, And, and what does it mean to live off of that little and try to maintain possibly and why there's so much, like you said, the pushback to putting in a historic district because I've gone to neighborhood association meetings because that's part of my job is to go and really maintain a relationship and people who live outside of the west central historic district do not want to be made one because they're afraid of the input and the cost that it would raise their cost of living and they've found a very safe haven for living off of little Mm -hmm. but still living in a reputable area and it's amazing because on paper, or someone from the outside, could be like, "Oh, what's the drawback of having a historic district?" And then you look into the paperwork, and you realize that, "Wow, there is a give and take, and we do need to hear the other side." Uh, I feel like all this research just illuminated that. Mm-hmm.
0: Median income for Four Wayne's just under forty-nine thousand. Only one neighborhood, North Highlands, was uh, at or above, and they were they were slightly above. Like one
1: hundred and one percent.
0: Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then every other neighborhood was hovering either right at 30, just above or just below uh, in terms of median income uh, and Fort Wayne. And so that supports like you're your, your speaking of uh, how many people are really just kind of...
1: Yeah, and so it's median income, so obviously uh, that's finding the midpoint. So what median doesn't tell us are the edges. So I don't know how little folks are living on or how much folks are living on. I just know the midpoint. What we know is that averages tend to be higher than the median, but it it does tell you, I mean, so think about it, trying to hold a household together, especially if we're looking at Pettit-Rudisil with a large number of families for under $30,000 a year. This is, this is asking a lot of these folks. And I think that that can't be understated, especially when we're looking at it compared to the city of Fort Wayne.
0: Yeah. One of the other elements of data, you kind of pulled this in when we were, towards the end of when we were discussing all the elements was looking at kind of the, the assessed value of housing. Yeah. Uh, that was a really insightful aspect to this research project to me I'm curious, like, what did you take away from, so we have total assessed value of all the parcels, and it helped really determine what type of parcels are in these neighborhoods, and kind of tells at least the housing story, but also uh, the valuation um, it's really interesting to me to look at like, what's the percentage of number of parcels versus the total assessed
2: value. Sure.
1: sure, yeah. So these are actually from the tax records. So what we did was we worked with the Wayne Township Assessor's Office, and I'd like to give a little shout out to them. They were super helpful on giving this information. The reason actually why we started with this was actually not driven by assessed valuation. It was actually driven because property tax cards tell us the age of the house. So when we were looking at census records, census only goes back to 1939 or earlier. Uh, So we don't know, and we knew that we were dealing with a large number of houses that would have been built in the late 1800s or or through the 1920s. And so I thought, gosh, I would really like to know something about the ages of the houses. So that's where it started. Then I realized that we've got a great treasure trove of information with the assessed valuation. With the assessed value, also what we know, though, is that it is market, it is connected to the market. Yeah. Uh, lots of folks have their AVs that may be below what they anticipate selling their house for. So I would not go forward and say this is what they are going to sell their house for. Absolutely. But it does give us some value of understanding what the about what does the tax office think about them. And so I think that that was a really interesting thing. Also, we got some good information about the number of vacant parcels. Uh, on that, and so some neighborhoods had many more than others. If I remember correctly, Pettit Rudisil had a large number of them. Now, what I'm cautious about saying is that those are sort of the gaps in the teeth, so to speak, of a neighborhood. Sometimes what it is is that it might have been two lots that were sold together, and the person purposely bought a vacant lot next door so they'd never have another neighbor. But also, some of those are going to be because houses have been torn down. And But it also gives us a, some understanding of what are some development opportunities if we get to the point where we're seeing new construction in neighborhoods. Is there some flexibility and some opportunity to do that there? I know that West Central has some... some uh, North Highlands has next to no vacant parcels. Um, and so it's just an interesting thing. We were also then able to give information about duplexes, triplexes, things like that.
0: Yeah, always a pretty major topic for conversation. When we uh, went back with some preliminary data and met with all the neighborhood associations to really get to the qualitative, they just want to know about, like, what's our vacancy rate? What's our home ownership rates? What's our rental rates? And that conversation really went the same for each neighborhood. Yes. Uh, they want to know the percentage. Many of them want to contest the data in terms of thinking that there's a higher level in certain areas than others. Uh, another topic in the qualitative side is it didn't matter what that percentage was. The belief that renters are bad for the most part kind of is prevalent.
1: Yeah, I w- I'm not sure if I would say that they would say them as bad. I would sure. just say that they d- were not, sure. ad- they were not adding value to the neighborhood. So I think it was, so it's two ways, I think it was a, it was a two factor combination that people had concern about rentals. One was concern about the maintenance of the house. So that was one. Two was the fact that renters are perceived as not to be engaged in the neighborhood as homeowners are. So if you had a landlord who took really beautiful care of their property and the person who lived in that house then became the secretary of the neighborhood association, there would be nothing wrong with that in the eyes of the neighbors. It was really a concern about maintenance and engagement with the neighborhood association. Those were the two things that were driving that. That was a consistent theme across all five neighborhoods were concerned about the share of rentals. And so that was one. Also, what surprised me was less concern about the number of vacancies. I would anticipate that vacant houses would have been more of a problem than renters, because renters are people <laughs> who are living there. Um, but rental, uh, vacant ones sort of got a, uh, yeah, there's some vacancies and moving on. Uh, so that was, and some of these neighborhoods had substantial numbers of vacancies, especially higher than the City of Fort Wayne.
0: Yeah, that was one of the takeaways for me in terms of like what do we do next or what's a potential option for NeighborLink is looking at that, that's more of a human relational connectivity issue um, in many cases than it is a function of a property to mm-hmm. your point. And so when we went back to uh, say North Highlands that had 80%, almost 80% home ownership rates and said, yeah, we understand that you have these challenges but you have like exponentially better home ownership rates than at least the neighborhoods we And so then the narrative begins to change and the conversation is open. And then you get really diving down into like, oh, well, it's really about my, at least our interactions and our frustrations are about a few problem properties um, related to the issues that you described there. So uh, very interesting stuff. We have lots of data on a lot of this stuff. Where do you see from CRI's perspective, this kind of research fitting into some of the other research projects? Um, that are happening in Fort Wayne right now?
1: Sure. Well, I think obviously more information is better uh, to help give some context. I mean, so I think what it does is it gives some numbers to support what you're seeing. What I always like to tell clients when we're getting ready to start a research project is you will find a lot of things affirmed that you already expected, but be ready to be surprised by a few things. I have a feeling that that you saw that with this project. So I think what we need to understand is the concentration of low-income households in the central city neighborhoods. And so we see that across, I mean, so when we did a project with the St. Joe Community Health Foundation of looking at every zip code in Allen County, the varying household incomes, that median household income across zip codes is pretty dramatic. I mean, so that it's really a key for us to understand, especially when we look at the city of Fort Wayne, Uh, the city of Fort Wayne's boundaries were fluid for a number of years in terms of getting larger. Mm -hmm. And so that the city of Fort Wayne reflects a variety of neighborhoods, a variety of housing styles, and a variety of educational and income levels. And so that's really an an interesting and curious dynamic for us as we start to look forward to see what does the whole city look like. So I think that, that the understanding of being able to look at some key quantitative data on this, and we were able to then use a proprietary software product that allowed us to draw the actual boundaries of the particular neighborhood so that we weren't having to work within a census tract and make a guess, Um, because I believe Hoagland-Masterson is within the same census tract as Williams-Woodland, and you can see that there is a, a great difference between the two neighborhoods' numbers on that and so that it helps to give us some credibility in terms of that data source of when we sort of say okay when we look around we sort of get a sense that like this this aligns with what we're seeing um in our day-to-day interactions and so i think that that was really a key part of this is then to be able to understand and really dive down pretty deeply into these individual neighborhoods and get a really good sense rather than just having to make some good guesses yeah
0: one of the things that we saw because of this research um just even doing the process and working with the Neighborhood Association, there were some uh, not only enlightening ideas or thoughts or really strong validations of some of the, the felt needs of a neighborhood with many of the, the neighborhood leaders that were really kind of really interested. Uh, just being kind of a mediator, middle ground, facilitating some conversations. We know, um, and what Bernadette's been doing, we know many of these neighborhood leaders have really been trying to take some ideas already, looking at some of the data and moving some, some of the ideas forward.
1: Well, that's exciting.
0: Yeah. What, where do you feel like neighborhoods can really start to apply these concepts from your perspective?
1: Well, I think that one of the key things is that your approach for each neighborhood needs to be honoring and respecting the dynamics of that particular neighborhood. So a fast way to sync this project would be to say, "Okay, here are the three things that every neighborhood should do, and we're going to help you do it. No, that's actually when we look at this, you've got vastly different different sizes of neighborhoods, vastly different levels of engagement within the neighborhood association. If I've got North Highlands where I've got, what, 80% homeowners, that's going to look very different than when I have a majority of renters. What does that neighborhood, that approach look like? And so I think that a fast way to sync this is to go ahead and try to do the same thing for all the neighborhoods. Despite the fact that, in many ways, the numbers look very similar across that so i think that you're really going to want to then say okay work with the neighborhood leadership help them understand what these numbers tell us about their neighborhood help give them some time to wrap their head around it because i think often when you bring forward numbers I often will be in meetings where I can just tell that they don't like the answer that they got. And so instantly now, what I, I feel like I'm a climate scientist and I'm up against climate deniers, and I'm like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, and so I think what it is, is instead of trying to like go head to head, it's just sort of like, here's the information, let's take a look at it. Give them some time to reflect on it, because I think in some ways, this is rather affirming, and sometimes it's rather jarring for them and frustrating. And sometimes it sort of highlights the things that they've already known that've been going on. Yeah. So I think if you can work with them on those things and let them sort of let them have some time to think about it, rather than get on the defensive, um, or to be like, or who think that it's better, the numbers are better than they anticipated them to be. Uh, or the, the, yeah the number they were expecting much better numbers than what they got back to sort of say okay let's think about this let's sit with this let's give it some thought and then how can we move forward with this information
0: hmm. How do you advise or like encourage people to use reports like this and that can be lengthy or using data to really kind of inform their decisions or like talk about it I think it's kind of hard because sometimes you know there's at least in the nonprofit realm there's this discussion and this I don't need another report sitting on my desk.
1: Right well and I guess the question is Why are you doing it? Are you doing a report for report's sake? Are you doing a report to then be able to make some action as a a result of it? So if this is just to check the box because a grant requires it or because you just think this is you want to get a headline on it, well then, yeah, you're probably not going to do anything with it. If you were like, we really want to have a project where we understand some new information and we're going to take this information, even if we don't like the results because we have to be open-minded about it, then that's your opportunity to go forward and use it. I think that you need to be an informed audience when you're using this. I mean, so we had we put together what, like a 200-page report for you Um, as a big, full document. It's a lot of information that's not exactly some light reading. But I'm confident that you're gonna be able to use that in your operations to be able to move your organization forward on that. Um, And so I think when you're looking at it from the general public, is to go in with an open mind to understand this and that. understand that the quantitative data is only one side of this. So there's a whole qualitative function that we did with it. And I think one of the key things is when you look at some of these numbers and you're like, gosh, these are so far below the city of Fort Wayne, I think what you can't underestimate is the fact that the people who are engaged with their neighborhoods love where they live. Yeah. And I think we can't overlook that because I think some people are going to look at this and go, why does anybody live in that neighborhood? And they're like, we actually, when we talk to them, people like where they live. There's a lot of neighborhood pride. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I I don't interact with too many people over the course of the year at NeighborLink that aren't, for the most part, pretty content with where they are living. Certainly, they want the circumstances to change like any of us at any given time, yet they really have chosen to be there and don't necessarily need to change or move.
1: Right, and so I think one of the other key things that came through with the neighborhoods was they believe that there is a much more negative perception of the neighborhood than what they, when they believe as, as residents of
2: where they live. Mm-hmm. And looking at the numbers and how similar they are, they, I argue, are warranted to believe that.
1: Yeah, now I will say that we did not look at any crime information. Yes, that that, that's so a big admission, Right, exactly. And though there was a, that was a deliberate decision made for a variety of reasons on that. Uh, but that people like where they live, uh, and I think that can't be underestimated on that.
0: Middle neighborhoods is a concept that uh, we mentioned throughout the report, and it's really a new terminology for some of the feelings and the things we are seeing and researching and maybe some of the motivations. Describe Middle Neighborhoods, the concept behind Middle Neighborhoods, as we've uh, really just started trying to get a bigger, get our heads around the concept. But uh, to your point, and many of our other conversations, is a really great um, title and description and a working definition for many of Fort Wayne's urban neighborhoods.
1: Yeah, so Middle Neighborhoods is a concept that has taken hold in other large midwestern industrial cities. Uh, cities usually have 50,000 more, 50, people or more, and so it typically represents the neighborhoods that were built from thereabouts 1900 through sort of like 1940s, 50s, 60s, so that first half of the 20th century. And so what is interesting about them is that they've they been identified as middle neighborhoods, and so that I think one of the key measures that you can, if you want to actually create a true middle neighborhood you can do this really elaborate. Um, market analysis that you could hire lots of fancy consultants to do, or you can really just sort of say the. What I think the key measure is for a middle neighborhood: is there a viable housing market? Is that do people want to buy in this neighborhood? So I'm thinking of neighborhoods in Fort Wayne that it would be very hard, even in this hot housing market, it would be hard to sell a house or you'd take a huge hit on what your perceived value would be. And then there's going to be other neighborhoods where you're going to be like, if I'm selling a house on Wayne or Berry Street, I anticipate to get top dollar for that. So the idea with middle neighborhoods is that it could go either way. Uh, And so they tend to, so actually, without us knowing it, when we picked these five neighborhoods, we ended up picking five middle neighborhoods. We didn't even know what this concept was. so they are typically, like I said, located in Midwestern cities, Northeastern cities. Milwaukee has made good use of it, Detroit, Baltimore, some other cities. And so it's an opportunity for us to use that. We think that that some of the research has shown that middle neighborhoods offer what we call a strong value proposition. We heard this from the neighbors. You get a lot of house for your money. Uh, so it is very... When we look at the household incomes, this is a very attractive housing product for a lot of the folks who are earning somewhere between, let's say, like thirty dollars to $50,000 a year. This is a really quality place for them. The challenge is that these houses often don't have all of the features that homeowners want. So you don't always have a second bathroom. You don't always have a dishwasher. You don't always have an attached garage. Those are features that are very attractive. And so when we're looking at, let's say, a married couple with household incomes, 70, 80, $100,000 a year, these can be very hard homes for them to want to buy because they're giving up a lot of the things that they would otherwise like in their house. And so it's that dynamic. How do you how do you keep the housing stock refreshed? And Interested to that now. When I look, I live over um, by Lakeside Park, so which was not studied in this project. But what we see is that significant people are there's significant numbers of folks who are coming in, flipping houses, spending big money. So there's clearly the opportunity for some market potential in these neighborhoods. You just have to play your cards right. Mm
0: -hmm. Do you think uh, the momentum from downtown development uh, is or could be bringing? more attention to these urban neighborhoods and where we kind of research to this point?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, so obviously West Central has enjoyed a renaissance in the Parkview Field era. Uh, so that, that if you take a look at this, I mean, if you talk to the folks over in historic preservation, they will tell you that they've seen in the past five years, a lot of building permits pulled for garages. And garages are a sign that what used to be a multiplex two three, people, two, three units are now being converted back into traditional houses for the fact that people are building garages. You don't build a garage for a renter, you build a garage for an owner. And so that, that way, they're seeing some of that renaissance there. So clearly, that is happening immediately to the west of downtown. Other neighborhoods are waiting for their moment. So Hoagland-Masterson hasn't enjoyed that same level of investment and private uh, market interest in that. Now, it doesn't mean that it's not going to happen, it just hasn't occurred to this point. North Highlands, I, we didn't do a housing analysis, so I can't tell you what housing prices have done historically over this, but by all accounts, North Highlands has stayed to be a relatively stable neighborhood. That was There was no comment made about a, a new resurgence, but I would have to think that having a central business district, your central core of your city, becoming a thriving place to either work, live, or play is going to have a positive influence on what we call the collar neighborhoods. That's been promised to us by lots of consultants over the years, and I think we're starting to see that to varying degrees, and West Central is probably the case study in that right now, but you can see that in in Williams Woodland. You're gonna see that I think in some other neighborhoods. Yeah.
2: An anecdote, I actually was just in North Highlands and one of the residents who I was going and delivering a home improvement incentive grant, she said, she's like, I chose here because it's so close to downtown. There's so much to do in downtown. She actually had moved in from the west coast. And she wanted more house for her money. It was the value proposition. And it was this little gem. She didn't even know about North Highlands, but for the fact that a friend moved in. And then she went into the neighborhood, realized it's close to all the amenities they wanted. And it's so perfectly insular and connected as a little neighborhood that she loved it. So you are, I guess, I am seeing some of the value proposition, maybe not in all the neighborhoods equally, but it is an interesting thing to see kind of trickle out and how it will impact over time. Yeah,
1: I also think that the distance to downtown is incredibly relative. Yes. Um, so if you're somebody who lives up in Huntertown, you're going to perceive North Highlands as being downtown, yes. very likely. Um, whereas somebody who lives over off of Spy Run is not going to perceive. North Highlands as being downtown because they can walk to downtown. North Highlands is too far to be a walkable location, but easily to bike. And so it's downtown keeps getting bigger in terms of perception. Yeah,
2: it does. Yeah, especially as people from the outskirts perceive themselves as being in Fort Wayne. Like Mm -hmm. my family honestly didn't realize we were outside of the city, but for the fact on the ballot, we couldn't vote for mayor because you felt like you were in the city. You go downtown for everything, especially in the last 10 years, Mm -hmm. which is, big testament to the renovation and the redevelopment.
0: Bernadette, you put a lot of energy into kind of um, looking at it from our perspective in terms of what did we learn? What are the five kind of key indicators of health based on the research and looking at um, both quantitative, but then really having taken the qualitative conversations that we had and kind of summarizing, do you wanna just give a high level Uh, view of some of these indicators for the the sake of the conversation.
2: Definitely. So I really enjoyed going through this and I got to take the benefit of all of Rachel's research and all of her wonderful report. But um, very simply, it's the things that you would expect. It really worked out to being like, like we said, people who enjoy their neighborhoods. That's a huge indicator of health. Do you have pride? Are you happy to be there? Do you feel like it is a good place to live? That will determine How you perceive your neighborhood and how much you're willing to invest in it. You don't invest in a neighborhood you don't love and that's one of the the hallmarks of why NeighborLink would get called in is because people either can't or won't invest and what that does to the greater neighborhood. But then we've always, um, NeighborLink has studied social connectivity. How do we get people to be connected? How do we get people? Engaged so that they can meet the needs that maybe social services doesn't. So that was another, that was the next indicator, the idea of social connectivity. Are people actually knowing their neighbors? Like Pettit Rudisil, if we look at the neighborhood association, we would say that a lot of them don't know their neighbors because they're not engaged in a formal way. But we just may not have the right metric for viewing that. They may be engaged with each other, but we just can't see it from an outside organization reaching in um, while West Central or Williams Woodland who have regular meetings seem much more connected and they also are leveraging like internet platforms such as Facebook to be connected and to share whatever they need and things of that nature. And then safety of course, Um, we didn't cover crime statistics but the perception of safety. A lot of neighbors said they felt safe because they knew their immediate neighbors and that goes into the social connectivity but it also goes into a, a street with eyes on it is safer If you are engaging in your neighborhood, you're more likely to feel comfortable living in it and not being unsafe. And the next thing was beautification. That came up in the qualitative research, I think to the chagrin of all of us, of how many times people mentioned trash, regardless of neighborhood. No one wants a dirty street. No one wants to feel like people aren't picking up or maintaining things. And that was another element that people really latched onto. And then the final one, let me grab that one, is, collaboration with city government and organizations i'm amazed that i forgot this one because this was also alarming to me that only one neighborhood directly stated it which was north highlands but it makes sense because some of the other neighborhoods haven't engaged as because they didn't have necessarily the same dire needs like north highlands had serious issues with their sump pumps serious issues with their street infrastructure so they petitioned the city they had a incredible powerhouse of a neighborhood association leader, and she made sure that they knew who to call, they called repeatedly, they got the work done, and that definitely has to be part of neighborhood health, because otherwise, you're just one of what, 200 and some neighborhoods in Fort Wayne, if you don't make your needs known, if you don't communicate, They're not going to realize what you need. And I
1: would say, I think that the other neighborhoods have worked with city government. They just didn't bring it up. I'm confident that West Central has, I mean, has worked with it, but it just didn't come up in the narrative. So I think that it's, it's, yeah. So that, but neighborhoods have a lot of leverage with city government to be able to make connections, to be that point of contact to do that. It was just interesting that North Highlands was the one that mentioned it.
0: Yeah I took away from this is these were the five kind of main characteristics that we saw uh, a lot of almost every neighborhood expressed them having aspects of this and expressed it being an important aspect. Uh, What we don't fully know is to what level like there isn't a scale or a scale we've come across and it would be really interesting to take these kind of uh, five key indicators of health and then build some sort of scale to figure out, you know, where are you as a neighborhood on on this? And let's
1: also remember that this was a self-selective audience um, of the fact that we didn't just go and knock on every third door in the neighborhood. So it was a, these are folks who are predispositioned to enjoy where they live because they're engaged with their neighborhood association. So I think that we would be remiss not to note that in this conversation that the, people who come to the neighborhood associations like where they live mm-hmm.
2: or they really don't like it and they want you to know. Right. And we did not have much of that really at all. Yeah, thankfully.
0: So Rachel, you do a lot of research all year related to community health, mm-hmm. Uh As we move to wrap up, what do you feel like makes a healthy neighborhood healthy?
1: Well, So I think that what was interesting to me when we talked about, that was when our closing question when we were talking to neighbors was what makes a healthy neighborhood healthy and nobody mentioned any economic measures which I thought was an interesting thing. I fully anticipated that most neighborhoods would have told me increasing home values would have been part of what makes a healthy neighborhood healthy. It's an external measure that and often folks who are homeowners are have a vested interest in seeing this increase. Uh, And no, that was not. And so I think what a healthy neighborhood is really, I think, what the neighbors want it to be. Um, So I think for some folks, they really want a neighborhood to be strongly connected. Others want to have a heavily programmed neighborhood so that that way there's activities and, and picnics and things like that. Others are going to how can they be engaged with their neighborhood? We've got neighborhoods of varying size that we looked at. So you've got more than 5,000 people living in Pettit-Rudissel. You've got less than 1,000, just over 700 in Williams Woodland. That's going to look very different. I know that folks who live in Williams Woodland love it because it's very. people are very engaged with one another. For others, that may not be their style. Um, And so that would make it hard to live in Williams Woodland, perhaps, um, for them. So I think that it's What does the neighborhood look like, and how can you be involved as much or as little as you want? Um, So I think that neighborhood health is going to be decided. I think people want to be connected to their neighbors at some level, and so I think allowing people to choose that level of engagement and activity, what you want to do is have enough folks who are living there who want to be engaged and to, to come alongside one another.
0: Well, Rachel, thank you for partnering with NeighborLink on this project. Your energy and enthusiasm and your uh, personal interest in doing this research and this kind of conversation really helped, uh, helped us. Uh, get through this first phase and come out where we're at. So we're grateful for you and CRI's uh, commitment to everything.
1: Well, thank you very much for selecting me, and I look forward to see where uh, section or year two on this project goes.
0: Yeah, we're uh, working on some of those plans. Uh, we would be remiss if we didn't thank Fuller Foundation for offering us an Inspire grant to fund this research. Uh, it's a two year grant process, so this is phase one. Uh, we've been kind of working on the ideas of phase two we were really we started into this initiative with uh, some ideas of which way phase two could go based off phase one and so we're going to kind of finalize that and we'll launch kind of what we're going to do in phase two at the beginning of 2020 and kind of keep going with this research and see how it shapes neighborlink and how we can help additional neighborhoods our desire is to help neighborhoods figure out who they want to become and if we can attract and connect resources to them we would certainly want to do that all for the sake of helping neighbors that are falling through the cracks get connected to their neighbors who may or may not be able to help them out. But uh, we certainly believe the neighborhoods are better when we're connected and serving one another. So. Well, thank you for tuning into this episode of Neighboring Podcast. This wraps up phase one and kind of the general report. Like I mentioned at the beginning, we have a summary report that will be up on the website and uh, the NeighboringPodcast.com website attached to this episode. So download it, dive in, uh, send us a a note, ask some questions. We'd be happy to discuss this with you as we keep moving forward.